It's certainly good to see as many as we have out tonight. If you're visiting, we want you to know that you're our special guest, and we pray that you will find that we worship in spirit and truth. Let us go to our Father in prayer. Father in heaven, as we approach your throne, praying through Jesus, your precious Son and our Savior, praying, Father, that you will guide us in our daily lives, Lord, that we will open our hearts up to you, Father, and obey your will in all things, that you will be honored and glorified. So thankful, Father, for this congregation and the work that we do here. We pray, Lord, that the work we do is in accordance with your will. We pray, Father, for those of our number that are sick. We pray, Lord, that you would lay your healing hand upon them. Restore them, Father, to good health. That they may return to services once again and continue to service you, serve you, Father, and bring you honor and glory. We pray, Father, that you would be with Josh tonight, or the speaker. The lesson they bring, Father, we'll apply it to our lives and share it with the world. And we know, Father, that you love us, and we pray, Lord, that you will strengthen us with your strength, that our faith will grow in love for you and your word. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to have one hymn and then the lesson tonight. Uh, please place a marker at number 696. 696. And then turn to number 499. 499. Christ will me his aid afford, never to fall, never to fall, while I find my precious Lord, sweeter than all, sweeter than all. Jesus is now and ever will be, sweeter than all the world to me. Since I heard his loving call, Sweeter than all, sweeter than all. I can follow all the way, hearing him call, hearing him call, finding him from day to day. Sweeter than all, sweeter than all. Jesus is now and ever will be Sweeter than all the world to me Since I heard his loving call Sweeter than all, sweeter than all Though a vessel I may be Broken and small, broken and small Yet his blessings fall on me Sweeter than all Sweeter than all, Jesus is now and ever will be, sweeter than all the world to me, since I heard his loving call, sweeter than all, sweeter than all. When I reach the crystal sea, voices will call, Voices will call, but my Savior's voice will be sweeter than all, sweeter than all. Jesus 
voice is now and ever will be sweeter than all the world to me since i heard his loving call sweeter than all sweeter than all i want to thank you for that prayer joe Sometimes the answer is no, it is not Josh, it will be me tonight, but thank you anyway. Also, I want to thank all the men that have spoken this uh, during this summer. Uh, it was a big ask, it was a kind of a crazy idea, we'd have our own little summer series with our own men, but it, it has really worked out well, and I'm really proud of the men that have been up here, they've done a really, really good job, and it exceeded my expectations. Turn your Bibles to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. We're going to talk about um, the fruit of the Spirit, but specifically about the fruit of the Spirit called self-control. That's going to be our central um, point tonight that we're going to be looking at. Galatians 5. Beginning in verse 1, for freedom Christ has set us free, so stand firm therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Now I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he's bound to keep the whole law. You're severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision is of any avail, but faith working through love. You were running so well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? And this persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view than mine. And he who is troubling you will bear his judgment, whoever he is. But if I, brethren, still preach circumcision, why then am I being persecuted? In that case, the stumbling block of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettled you would mutilate themselves. Or one version says, I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate yourself. So hold on, stop right there. This is some very serious language. We're, we're talking about something very major here. Paul has not just got some, some minor issue with the Galatian church that he wants to tweak a little bit. We're talking about something that's at the very core of the essence of the gospel that's being challenged, where you have to do this or do that, or you're severed from Christ. Verse 13, For you were called to freedom, brethren, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But through love, be servants of one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, take heed that you're not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit. Do not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to prevent you from doing what you would. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are plain. Fornication, impurity, licentiousness, um, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, anger, selfishness, dissension, party spirit, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and the like. And I warn you, as I warned you before, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And if we live by the Spirit... Let us also walk by the Spirit. 
Let us have no self-conceit, no provoking of one another, and no envy of one another. Amen. So when we look at this tonight, this fruit of the Spirit, and and specifically self-control, you might want to say, well, what is the lifestyle of a person that would have self-control clearly on display? What is the fruit of the Spirit? Where does it come from? How, How is it produced? Well, the answer is produced in the lives of those people who are energized and indwelt by the Holy Spirit, by God the Holy Spirit. Each time we find a characteristic of fruit in our lives, it's the result of the work of God through his Holy Spirit living within our lives as God is making us the kind of people that he designed us to be. So God has chosen us for himself. He's included us in his family. We're justified. He pours out his spirit upon us. He gives gifts to his church. He places his fruit in our lives in order that we might become what we were intended to be. Now, in the course of that, it's important that we realize, and that's why we contextualize verses 22 and and 23. That's why we read the whole chapter. Because you're going to spend a moment or two understanding the context in in which this particular element of self-control is found. What the Spirit of God within us is doing is something called sanctification. You're justified when you put Christ on a baptism. Your sins are forgiven. You become a child of God. Now, you're given this gift of the Holy Spirit, and through him, this sanctification becomes a progressive work of grace within the life of a Christian. It's, it's God that's working in and through the lives of his people. The sanctification, although it's imperfect in this life, and it's imperfect in this life because we will never be what we are going to be in this life, it's affected in every part of man's nature. Some remnants of corruption still persist in every part of our nature. And so there is a continual and irreconcilable war that goes on within us. The flesh warring against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. Verse 16 is why Paul wrote, walk by the spirit. You will not gratify the desires of the flesh. The reason he says that is because we are a walking battleground. We are. We face an internal battle all the way from here to eternity. And the battle takes place in this realm where our con- our corrupted selves continue to gravitate towards that which is wrong and the work of the Spirit of God within our lives that moves us to do the right things, to do as we should. And Paul knows a thing or two about the struggle. Inspired as he is, he was brutally honest in Romans 7. He talks about the struggle he has, beginning in verse 14. We know that the law is spiritual, but I'm carnal, I'm sold under sin. I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree the law is good, so then it's no longer I that do it, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells within me, that is, in my flesh. I can will what is right, but I can't do it. For I do not do the good that I want, but the evil that I do not want to do is what I do. Now, if I do what I do not want, it's no longer I that do it, but sin which dwells in me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my very inmost self. But I see in my members another law at war with the law of my mind, and it makes me captive to the law of sin. It isn't just Paul here that mentions this. Um, It runs throughout the New Testament. James makes the same point largely in, in James 1, verse 14. Each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. What desire? The desire to do wrong, the desire to please myself, the desire to worship myself rather than worship God. Peter encourages his readers in similar lines in 1 Peter, the second chapter, verse 11, abstain from the passions of the flesh, which do what? Which war against the soul. 
And Paul, similarly, in Ephesians 4, says to the Ephesians, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, which is corrupt through its deceitful desires. So this is the battleground in which we live our Christian lives. So any idea that you, you got that when you became a child of God, that temptations went away or the waves got smoother is simply rubbish. That's exactly when the fight started. That's when the fight started. These Galatian verses that we read set the context for self-control. Get a hold of yourself. Get yourself under control. We might say these things to one another, and we know what they mean. We understand it. Self is one of the toughest weeds that grows in the garden of our lives, though. Who is it that you have the most trouble with in your entire Christian life? Who is that person? Be honest, it's yourself. You might want to say, well, it's your spouse or it's the guy down the street, the person um, that I work with, some people that I go to school with, this whatever, some family member. The reality is none of that's true. The biggest problem is ourselves. Consider how easily we're caught up in self-centeredness and self-deception, deceiving ourselves that we're a lot more important than we really are. Um, self-pity, we think in terms of self-control, we think about this weed, which is us, that we need to realize how desperately that we need the work of the Holy Spirit to conform us to more what he wants us to be in the image of Jesus. But instead, we often fertilize the the weed instead of letting the Spirit help us. So I'm going to think about this in three quick lines here. Number one is the need for self-control. First of all, nothing like stating the obvious. The need for self-control is clear because otherwise everybody's out of control. And pretty much everybody is at this point. The reason the Bible has so much to say about it is because God knows that his children are tempted to overindulge. That we as as his children are tempted to live outside the boundaries that he has established for our good. As any loving father, he loves his children. He established boundaries for his children, for us, for our protection, for our well-being, for our good, and for his glory. But he knows that there's a perversion within each one of us that somehow or another we're prepared to step beyond that boundary every chance we can. He's seen it often and he's seen it early, beginning in the garden. It's who we are. We live in a self-indulgent culture, one that's been too successful, too often, impressing its ideology, not just in its thought forms, not just around the world, but even into the church. Remember in Ecclesiastes, this was brought up last week, the writer in Ecclesiastes says quite proudly in the middle of chapter 2, I denied myself nothing that my heart desired. I just did whatever I wanted to do. Well, That's largely the approach of our Western culture. Enjoy yourself, please yourself, satisfy yourself, do whatever you want to do. Well, the Christian lives in that world, and that world sadly bleeds sometimes into the church. The boat's supposed to be in the water. Water's not supposed to be in the boat. When water gets in the boat, this this is the kind of thing sometimes that you will come up, up again. You will begin to hear professing Christians quite loudly and proudly say that, you know, we've all been set free. We are free. We can live as we choose. We're free in Christ. It's grace. It's grace. It's all covered by grace. Well, that approach is kind of like we have the insurance, so now we can play with matches in the house. It's really a mentality that does not make any sense. As a child of God, and we as members of the church, we're to be in the world, but not of the world. We must live in the world, but we can't be what God wants us to be if the world lives in us, if there's water in our boat. Did Jesus die for you so that you could do whatever you wanted to do? Did he die in order so that you could just please yourself? Did he bear all your sin in order that you and I can just go out and sin gratuitously? Well, clearly not. And in Romans 6, Paul brings that to a point. He says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace can abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into 
Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into his death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead, by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Now, as a result of this kind of mentality where I'm free, I'm free, God is love, it's all grace and mercy, I can do as I choose. Anybody, anybody that attempts to counter that and say or teach that progress and sanctification involves effort or work or discipline on, on, or on our part or obeying the commands of Jesus almost instantly and invariably are labeled as what? Legalist. You're a legalist. Right? Because in the minds of the people, any idea that any attempt on our part to do anything, well, it surely means that we're depending on ourselves, and that's exactly not true, not so. The Spirit of God that works within us in order that he might put the willing desire within us to do what we're supposed to do is what's happening. A careful reading of Paul makes that clear. The true freedom is not a license to do as you please, but it's a liberty to do as you should. And the help and grace of God is what we ought to be, and helping us to be that way becomes increasingly a new normal. James does the same thing in James, the first chapter. But he who looks into the perfect law, it says in verse 25, he who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty and perseveres, being no hearer that forgets, but a doer who acts, he shall be blessed in his doing. In other words, here you have this perfect law of liberty. He says you can fall on one side to license, you can fall on the other side to legalism, but this perfect law gives you liberty. Here's the liberty. What is liberty? It's freedom. What's the freedom? That's the paradox. It's at the heart of the gospel story. It's right where we started in Galatians 5.1, for freedom Christ has set us free. Well, we can put it like this. We're held in bounds, but we're not held in bonds. We're held in bounds, but we're not held in bonds. We're battling, the Bible tells us, on three fronts, against the world, against the flesh, and against the devil every day, all day in our lives. And we battle our own internal desires that are often cultivated by external pressures and attractions. And our our inclination will often be to indulge in temporary pleasures. You know, Moses, it was said, he chose to suffer affliction from the people rather than enjoy pleasures of sin for a season. There is something about sin that is pleasurable. The allure of sin and the enticement has then to be addressed and enabled by the Spirit, guided by Scripture, producing within us this fruit of self-control. Again, true freedom is not a license to do as you please, but it's a liberty to do as we should. When we do sin and fall... Many of us sometimes are tempted to say things like, well, I couldn't help myself. I couldn't help myself. Well, actually, yes, you could. You could have helped yourself. The fact is that when we sin like that, whatever the object of our mistaken pleasure, we love that at that moment more than we love God. So in essence, it's idolatry. It's all about what you're worshiping. Either we're worshiping at the shrine of our own appetite our own desires, or we're worshiping at the foot of the cross where Jesus bore the punishment in order that we can live in this kind of freedom. So listen to me very carefully when I say this. When we do this, when, we, when we're declaring that God is not enough for us when we're sinning willfully, this is what's happening. When I sin and willfully sin, this is what I'm saying. You're just not enough for me going to have to find my satisfaction somewhere else or in someone else other than you, God. Whether it's in the forefront of my mind, whether I acknowledge it or not, that's what I'm saying. I cannot be satisfied with you, God. I've got to find it somewhere else. The boundaries that you've established for me are just too restricting. That's what's going on inside your heart. I know what you want me to do, but... And that's the challenge that every one of us faces. James 1 tells us, but each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed 
by his own desires. And then desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin, and when it's full grown, it brings forth death. I recently watched an old movie, <laughs> um, a train robbery kind of movie, and they had a guy that could climb up a wall like a spider, and he got in the building at night and through the roof and hung in there and opened the door and, and let the bad guys in, and they made, as the back in the 1800s, and made uh, clay models of the keys, and then they paid off some of the guards. And Anyway, the, the robbing was very successful because it was an inside job. It was an inside job. Here's an important thing you should know. Sin is an inside job. Sin is just like that. Every sin is an inside job. Oftentimes, I think when we sin, it would just be much better if we were honest about it. And we said, you know what? I did that because I wanted to. I did that because I enjoy that. I did that because that was good. I think I'll do that again. Maybe I'll just do it one more time. I'll just have one more. Maybe just one more look. And then I'll stop. Everybody that's ever been addicted to anything knows how that is. I'll just have one more visit to that little porn site. I'll just have one more vape. I'll just have whatever it is. And then, then I'll quit. Self-control. Proverbs 25, in, verse, in uh, chapter 25, verse 28, Solomon says that a man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. In other words, the picture is pretty clear. We have to have walls to keep inhabitants safe. And if our walls are broke down, anybody has access to our hearts. And therefore, they have access to our control. So the need for self-control, I don't think, could be any more obvious. The key is, who has control over self? Is it you or the Spirit of God? And that brings us to the nature of self-control. We really need to understand the nature of self-control. What, what, what is the Bible talking about here? Now, it's not talking about external moral influences. Um, like, you know, just count the ten. Or remember the old Nancy Reagan, just say no. Which is actually pretty successful. Say no to premarital sex or drugs or whatever. Just say no. We all remember that. Well, it can partially condition our behavior for just a moment but external moral influences cannot eradicate from our sinful hearts who we are. It can't eradicate the fundamental flaw in our moral makeup. They may educate, but they can't eradicate. That's not self-control. It's it's not a religious set of blinkers, blinders, or rules either. Self-control is a spirit-enabled, word-guided ability to avoid excesses and stay within God's given boundaries. The true nature of self-control is that we are enabled by the Spirit, and then we cultivate a skill of living a thoughtful and careful life, and we do what's right, despite our own desires. And remember the desires that are in us. You go to Galatians 6, and Paul makes it clear. He says, don't be deceived. God's not mocked. Whatever a man sows, he will reap. If he, if he sows his own flesh, he will from the flesh reap corruption because that's what it is. That's, who we, that's what flesh is corruption. But he who sows the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. So the Spirit of God is at work within us and is producing this element within us that helps enable us to do that. But that's why, again, Solomon in his wisdom in Proverbs 4 uh, chapter 23 talks to his son, as it were, above all else, guard your hearts. Guard your heart, for it's the wellspring of life. Guard your heart. Well, it's not a cardiological issue. The heart's the center in the Bible. It's the center of your mind, your emotions, and, and everything that's you. It's the epicenter of the unus, the unus of you. So he says guard that because he realizes that every sin is an inside job. So if we manage to do all these things externally, but we don't guide our heart, guard our hearts, then we're going to continue to be as success, susceptible to temptation as we ever were. Why? Because the real enemy of our souls is within. It's us. 
sinful desires, says Peter, and we quoted it earlier, abstain from these things. These are the sinful desires which make war on your soul. Sin is an inside job. And I find it quite striking when Paul gives direction to Titus to encourage the congregation in Crete. In Titus 2, verse 1, But as for you, teach uh, that befits sound doctrine. Bid the older men to be temperate, serious, sensible, sound in faith, and love and steadfastness. And that sounds a lot like self-control. That's the older men. Verse 3, Bid the older women to teach to be reverent in their behavior, not to be slanderers or slaves to drink. They're to teach what is good. And so train the young women to love their husbands and their children to be sensible, chaste, domestic, kind, submissive to their husbands, that the word of the God, word of God may not be discredited. And that sounds a lot like self-control. We have the older men, the older women, the younger women. And verse 6, how about the younger men? Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. That sounds a lot like self-control. So in other words, there's really no stage of life where you graduate from this class. It isn't something that we can just, it's just for the teens. We'll get the teens together. We'll put the girls in one room, the boys in one room, give them this talk, and they're on their way. No. This self-control class goes from here to eternity. It's, it's something that will be with you and a battle with you and a mission with you your entire life. So the true nature needs to be understood. It could be two days before you die when somebody comes to you and says, hey, you might want to stop doing that. Put yourself, get, get, put yourself together. Get under control here. Our sinful nature can only be overcome by the nature of God, not us. And then when you go to Titus, as we, as we are in, you realize that after he's given all these imperatives, then what does he immediately say in verse 11? For the grace of God has appeared for the salvation of all men. There's the impetus. There it is. That's the dynamic. You don't get the law without the love. Paul told Titus, basically, urge these people to be self-controlled. Make sure they stop doing this. Tell them to not do that. Tell them to fix this. Make sure they're self-controlled for the grace of God has appeared. That's it. That's the key. That's the wonder of it all. We do this self-control out of love, not out of law. When we separate God's imperatives from our focus on God's work for us and the person of his son, we almost inevitably and invariably go wrong. Religion says, become by self-effort what you're not. God says, become by grace what you are. Become by grace what you are. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5, Jesus died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. In verse 9 he says, whether we're at home or away or wherever we are, we make it our aim to please him. The beginning beginning of true self-control or self-mastery is to be mastered by Christ. That's now our aim. Our aim is to please him. So, when those times arise and we state a choice, or maybe some people that we dealt with before, and they said, let's go do this or whatever, and we go, no, we're not going to do that. Well, too often, they'll say, well, why, are you, why not? You used to. Why are you refraining from that? They say, well, we have a lot of rules in our church. No, no, no. No. You grow to the point that you say, no, I'm not going to do that because I made it a goal to please him. I made it a goal to please God. I want to please God so much that I'm not going to do that with you, even if I want to. I'm not going to sell out for a simple pleasure because I have a father who loves me, who's died for me and his son, and who's prepared a place for me and who's waiting for me. So no. So no. Because I love my Father so much, my Heavenly Father, I'm not worried what he will do to me if I do such and such. No, I love him so that I worry what it would do to him if I did that. Psalms 139, 
verse 23, says, Search me and try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there's anything, Father, in me that makes you sad. And lead me away. And lead me in the way of everlasting. Or search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there may be any wicked or hurtful way in me. And lead me in the way that's everlasting. So the nature of self-control comes from the Spirit of God, not from within us. It's not within us and can only happen with the Spirit of God in us. It's the only way. It's not a matter of merely gritting your teeth and saying, I'm just going to knuckle down, I'm going to try harder. I've got to do more of this and more of that. Or beating yourself up and taking a big breath and, you know, I just, I just got to do more. The control of self gets stronger as you diminish yourself and allow God to become stronger within your heart and your mind. Self-control comes when God controls self, not when you do. Think about it. My troubles have always come when I had control of myself, not when God did. (laughs) Self-control, I think, in that way is actually misnamed. It's misnamed. Self-control is actually the problem for all of us. Do you rely on yourself or do you rely on God? That's the age-old, that is at the core of everything about Christian, Christian living. Do we rely on God or do we rely on ourselves? Who's in control of self? And that leads us to the nurture of self-control. Number one, the need was for self-control is clear. Number two, the nature is not simply something of our own self-focused Self-effort where we're trying to complete a list of things we think we must do. It's an active love and response to John, to like John, the first John 4, 19. It's an active response. We love him because he first loved us. So how then does self-control become part and parcel of our lives? How does it become a new normal? Well, as I mentioned before, the beginning of, of self-mastery Uh, It's bringing our lives under control, uh, under the control of Jesus, to be mastered by him. It's not asceticism. And you may ask, well, what is asceticism? Well, it's it's defined as some severe self-discipline and avoidance of all forms of indulgence, typically for religious reasons. When Paul was writing these letters, there were people saying all kinds of things about this. You can't do that. You mustn't do this. You... You, or you have to do this, or you have to do that. And if you, if you don't do those things, or do those things, then you can never love or know God. Some of them for bad wine, some for bad marriage, some of them for bad anything they deem fleshly. But Paul isn't doing that. In fact, he's doing the opposite. You find good examples in Colossians 2. For instance, in verse 16, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink or with regard to festivals or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are shadows of things to come. But here's a, a key verse. But the substance belongs to Christ. The substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels are going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind, not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with the growth which is from God. So you see, it's about Jesus. It's about Jesus. It's about your relationship with Jesus. Verse 20, if, if, Christ, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, Why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to such regulations? Do not handle, do not touch, do not taste, referring to things that all perish as they're used, according to human precepts and human teachings. Why? These indeed have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, another key verse, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So there it is. I mean, the Bible is telling you as plain as can be. You, you want to do all this list of things. I'm going to do this more. I got to do that more. I got to knuckle down. I got to really bear down. All this extra, it's not going to do anything. It has no bearing, no bearing 
No value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. It's your relationship with Jesus. It's God working within you. That's the only thing that can do it. So it's not asceticism. It's not like Gandhi walking around and sticking your fingers in your ears every time you hear secular music or something. I mean, you can try that, but don't call it biblical self-control. What it means is that every dimension of our lives is brought under the mastery of Jesus. Jesus cares so much more about who you are than what you do. We'll say that again. Listen. Jesus cares, God cares, so much more about who you are than what you do. Because if the Spirit of God living within you can keep molding you to the person that you're designed to be, the doing will take care of itself. The doing will take care of itself. It's, a, it's the Spirit of God changing you. Your actions will follow. Remember, sin is an inside job. Changing your response to sin is an inside job. Many of the examples that we have in Scripture of people doing the right thing reveal that it comes from the heart, and it's between them and their God and their relationship. And there's many of them, but Genesis 39 is a good one. And Mike brought that up Wednesday, and, and it was fresh on my mind, where Potiphar's wife was telling Daniel, come, come, come lay with me, come, come to bed with me. I mean, it's an ideal situation. But he refused. And he gives all kinds of reasons, but here's where he is, and this is the key, the key one. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? So it wasn't Daniel saying, how can I do this and sin against Potiphar, or if he had been married, sin against my wife, or sin against my kids, or ruin my career, or maybe get you pregnant and mess up. It has nothing to do with any of that. Those aren't the ramifications that keep you from... It's how can I do this thing and sin against God? It's back again to how can I do this and hurt him so, since I love him so. Now, do you have the spirit of resentment in you or a spirit of bitterness or, or of some self-pity or flaming temper or whatever? All these things need to be brought under self-control. Our actions, our bodies, our emotions, our very thoughts our very thoughts. All this is self-control. Second Corinthians t- uh, 10, Paul says that we take every thought captive to obey Christ. So we bring our thoughts under his authority. And you remember uh, in Philippians 8 chapter, finally, brethren, whatever's true, whatever's honorable, whatever's just, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever's gracious, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And it's very hard to take every thought captive when the stuff we fill our minds with sometimes is exactly against the lordship of Jesus. We need then to learn to nip these things in the bud. Sometimes you're going to turn off the phone or turn off the TV or whatever it is. We need to say to ourselves, I can't put myself in this vulnerable spot. I can't put myself in this slippery slope, this slippery situation. Because I'm going to tell you that the day... There's going to be a day that will come. There's four pieces that are going to line up that day. You, desire, opportunity, and temptation. And those four things line up one day is going to be a very hard day for you. be a very hard day for you. You're going to be really up against it. So if we grow in our relationship and genuine love for God, the spirit of God that resides in our hearts will begin to break the chains of self-indulgence and self-reliance. Your self-control will be taken apart. The spirit of God cultivates within us solid joys and lasting treasures. I want you to get this. This is a key, key thing and we'll finish up. When our affections are taken up, if you stop and really dwell and pray on this, if our affections are taken up with the wonder of God's grace, the goodness to us, when his words and promises matter so much to us that these other words and other promises really have some less than fading appeal to us, they're hollow. 
when Christ is all in all, we understand how fleeting and how feeble and how futile all these other earthly time-constrained things are. Nurturing our relationship with Jesus is how we nurture self-control. We are involved in a continual and irreconcilable war, but it's a war where victory is assured if we have crucified our lives with Christ and the wonder of his grace to us, and we live by the Spirit, and we walk by the Spirit. But let's be honest with ourselves, and sometimes we have to. We have to be able to say, hey, I need to be careful here. I need to be careful here. Because the Spirit of God cultivates within me solid joys and lasting lasting treasures. And all that other stuff that's tempting me now, it's counterfeit. It's just vanity. It's candy floss. It looks good. It looks attractive. But its promises are empty. So grow closer to Jesus. Grow closer to his word. And his self-control will take your self-control out. Let's conclude with a prayer, please. Father, we thank you tonight that it's your blood and your righteousness through the Lord Jesus Christ that allows us to come boldly before your throne. We thank you that we stand complete in you, that we're not what we once were, we're not what we're going to be, but we are different by your grace. And we pray that we might heed your commands and your warnings and that you will pour out your spirit upon us in a fresh measure. And then you will help those of us who are toying with sin fiddling around with temptation, lying to ourselves about why we do what we do and when we're going to stop and why we only want to do it one more time. Lord, help us to flee. Help us to guard our hearts. For we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. If there's anyone here tonight that has struggles with self-control and they think that us praying or helping them would help them in any way, let us know. We all struggle with it, but we're here to help. Part of growing close to God tells us to grow close to each other, and I'm here to help you, and you're here to help me. And once in a while, you may tell me, hey, you need to to back off. You need to get yourself under control. And if you love me, you'll do that. We're staying ready to help you, Danny.
seated. Lord's table has been left prepared. Or is there anyone here that needs to partake tonight? Please raise your hand. I don't see anyone. Let's turn to uh, 457. 457. this hymn and then uh, have our announcements and uh, prayer. <clears throat> Savior, grant me rest and peace. Let my troubled dreaming cease. With the chiming midnight bell, tell my heart that all is well. I would trust my all with thee, all my cares and sorrows flee, till the breaking light shall tell, night is past and all is well. I would seek thy service, Lord, leaning on thy promise. 